Good morning, TBA. How are y'all this morning? That's great. Awesome. It's great to have you here this morning. My name is Dave Shive. I'm one of the pastors here at TBA. And if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, you know we're in this series called Koinonia, which is the brick and mortar of the church. The idea of Koinonia is this beautiful picture of the body of Christ coming together in a supernatural unity of fellowship and love in order to accomplish the mission that Jesus has called us to, that being sharing the good news of the gospel to those that are around us. Now, if you haven't been here and you haven't heard the first two messages in this series, you need to go to the website and download them and listen to them because they're both powerful. And I know I say this all the time about going back and listening to old messages, but I'm telling you, you need to listen to these two messages because I think if we truly want to understand what God wants us to be as a church, if we truly want to grow as individual believers and grow as the, as the body of Christ here at TBA, you need to have a good understanding of what those two messages uh, said. So go do that. So today we're going to continue in that series and we're going to talk about everybody's favorite subject. We're going to talk about how to deal with conflict in the body of Christ and still maintain that koinonia that we've been talking about. Because there's a right way and a wrong way to deal with conflict. Now, I read a news article this week that said a Sacramento, California man who hit his wife with a frozen squirrel was jailed on suspicion of spousal abuse. You can't make this stuff up. Police said that the 26-year-old man had been arguing with his wife early Monday morning when he walked into the kitchen, took several frozen squirrels from the freezer, the woman told the police that when she walked into the room, her husband began swinging the squirrels at her and struck her in the head with at least one of them. And she fell against the table and received a one-inch cut above her eye, and the man was booked into the county jail. Now, now we laugh at this story, but the truth is conflict is a very difficult thing. For a lot of us, there are probably a lot of things that we would like to avoid in our lives. Things like getting a shot or going to the dentist for a root canal or getting audited by the IRS or even standing in the line at the DMV. But most of us would be more than willing to endure one of those tasks, even if it meant getting hit in the head with a frozen squirrel, than to deal with conflict in our lives. See, there are people who begin to panic when they have to complain about something or They need to speak to someone about something they're unhappy with. Okay, so raise your hand. How many of you have received food in a restaurant that wasn't very good and you ate it and said nothing? Raise your hand. How many of you did? All right, good. Because deep, deep down inside of you, I mean deep down in your heart and soul, you despise conflict. And complaining about lousy food is worse than eating lousy food. So we just eat it. Because nobody likes to be confronted. And if you're somewhat human, you don't like to do the confronting either. But there there comes a time in life when we have to confront. And listen, confrontation isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it can be a really good thing if it's handled properly. In his book, The Safest Place on Earth, Larry Crabb wrote, The difference between spiritual and unspiritual community is not whether conflict exists, but it's rather in our attitude towards it and our approach to handling it. 
Now that's a powerful statement. Because we know that conflicts will always exist. But how we approach it is what matters. What determines whether we're a spiritual community or not is how we approach conflict by allowing the Holy Spirit to control that conflict. Now most people hate conflict. They don't like it because conflict is just that. It's a clash. It means somebody's angry or frustrated about something and we have to deal with it. But what we often do is we choose not to deal with conflict. We assume that if we ignore it, if we ignore it enough, it'll just go away. And if it goes away, then we can be blissful in life again. But more often than not, that's not the case because the conflict comes up again. Of course, there are people who love conflict. They thrive on it. And usually those people are the unhappiest people you'll ever meet in your life. They're unhappy because they really don't know what it's like to experience joy and peace and love through the Holy Spirit. Conflict can be difficult. And it can be complicated at times, especially within the church body. I mean, we have high expectations of each other, don't we? Simply because we confess to be followers of Jesus Christ. And we expect a certain level of behavior from each other. But occasionally our expectations don't get met. Also, passions run deep in a church. People feel deeply. And church can be a very unsafe place when conflict is dealt with inappropriately. Other people get involved who don't need to be, and friendships are sacrificed on the altar of ego, and oneness becomes this distant dream. Listen, no church is going to be free of conflict. What makes or breaks a church is how they choose to handle that conflict. It can drive us apart. It can. It can drive us apart and destroy us. Or conflict can lead us to greater dependence on the Holy Spirit and grow our love for each other. I know that sounds crazy, but it can. Again, it's all in the attitude and how we go about dressing it. In his book, To Tell the Church, Ron Craybill shows how to turn a disagreement into a feud. Okay, so these are things you don't want to do to handle conflict. I thought they were funny. Here's what he says you need to do. Can you even read that? That's really small. He says, be sure to develop and maintain a healthy fear of conflict, letting your own feelings build up so that you're in an explosive frame of mind. If you must state your concerns, be as vague and general as possible. Then the other person can't do anything practical to change the situation. Number three, assume you know all the facts and you're totally right. Use a clinching Bible verse. That's my favorite Use a clinching Bible verse. It's helpful. Speak prophetically the truth for truth and justice and do most of the talking. Latch tenaciously onto whatever evidence you can find that shows the other person is just jealous of you. Judge the motivation of the other party on any previous experience that showed failure or unkindness and keep track of all the angry words. And number six, avoid all possible solutions and go for total victory and unconditional surrender. All right, so that's what not to do. So let's look at a better way. Because if we really want to go, grow through conflict, then we need to take a look at the four steps that Jesus outlines in Matthew 18. And it's in uh, Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. So if you have a Bible, open that up. Otherwise, it'll be up there on the screen. So it says this. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. 
But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again, so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your, tra- your case to the church. If he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. So now there are four steps in what Jesus said there, and I'm going to spend most of our time talking about the first step, the going and and talking to the person in private. I'm going to talk about that first step for a few reasons. One is every one of us will find ourselves in a situation where we will need to implement that first step. And also, most conflict among, amongst Christians can be cleared up at this first step. But based on my experience, this first step is the one that is ignored the most. We often ignore it when conflicts arises. So we're going to spend most of our time on that first step. So Jesus gives us this pre- pretty clear and easy instructions of what to do if somebody sins against you. But as simple as it seems, because it does seem very simple, I think we miss exactly what he's saying. Because before you go to somebody, there are two things that you have to determine before you apply Jesus' instructions. The first one is determine whether or not the person that you're conflicted with is a brother or sister in Christ. Because if the person you must confront does not claim the word of God as their standard, you have no basis on which to make your claim. Now, you might be able to appeal to their conscience, but you come with no real authority. Because Jesus says, if a believer sins against you. Now, a brother and sister in Christ, however, you should have a standard to which you can call him or her to an account. Now, following Jesus' plan isn't bad at work or school, but when you're not dealing with Christians, it may not work at all. But that doesn't mean that when you are dealing with Christians that it's going to be smooth sailing either. Because sadly, the truth is that sometimes, more, than not, more often than not, it's harder to deal with conflict with your Christian brothers and sisters than it is with the world. It shouldn't be that way, but sometimes it is. The second thing you've got to determine is whether or not they have sinned. Whether or not they have sinned. This is a big deal. Because we have far too much confrontation that happens because of perceived slights or injuries, hurts that are to the ego and not based on sin as defined by God's word. Let me say that again. We have too many hurts that are based on ego and are not based on God's word that defines what sin is. See, we live in a politically correct society where people shout out injury at the slightest of perceived offense over things that have more to do with personality and style than they do with sin. See, Jesus isn't saying if your brother or sister irritates you or if they wear clothes you don't like or if they don't say hi to you in the lobby or if they don't invite you to your kid's birthday party, to their kid's birthday party, then go and tell them. That's not what he's saying. See, there's actually another process that we follow for all of these complaints that we have against each other that are not sin. There's another path. There's another thing that we do. Brian talked about it last week. There's this great word in the Christian life that covers irritations. I'll call them irritations because they're not sin. There's a great word. It's called forbearance. You heard that word before? 
forbearance. Colossians 3.13 says, bearing with one another. We're to bear with one another and forgive each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. We're to bear with one another. Listen, we all irritate and offend one another at times. It happens. And when we do, we are supposed to forbear one another. We're to put up with it. And then we're to forgive it. But if they do sin, you know, sin, things like gossip, lying, cheating, deceiving, abuse, those kind of sins, Jesus gives a very clear and practical way of dealing with a believer who sins against you. The first step is to go and point out the offense just between the two of you. Just between the two of you. The purpose is to win your brother or sister over. Not to bring the wrath of God down on them. Not to pay them back the hurt. Not to broadcast it to everybody in the tri-county. It's done out of love. Love for your brother and sister. Love because you want to restore the relationship. Love for them because you have made mistakes as well. Listen, you have made mistakes as well. We've all made huge mistakes. We all have. So grace has to be a part of it. Grace has to be offered. And make sure it's only between you and them. Far too often, between the time of the sin and the time of going to talk to that person, we have a lot of side conversations. Conversations that begin with things like, well, you wouldn't believe what so-and-so did to me. Or if we even want to spiritualize it, we go, well, man, I really need you to pray for me because, man, I've got to go talk to so-and-so because they did this. Well, if you really do want prayer, then just ask others to pray for you to give you wisdom in a difficult situation. And that's it. Don't say anymore. I mean, if we're going to follow what Jesus intends, then we're not going to discuss the conflicts or the sins that others have with us. See, it will do nothing. It will do absolutely nothing to win your brother and sister over, and that's the goal. Most likely, it's going to destroy your ability and your integrity to go to them and talk to them. So go and talk to the other person. Do it in love and grace just between the two of you. Just between the two of you. So I want to give you some guidelines because I want to give you some very practical things to do because it's easy to say, go talk to them. And you're like, oh, I can't, uh, conflict, I can't do that. So let me give you six very practical steps in order to have a conversation with somebody. Number one, you have to start soon. Start soon. You may need some space to deal with your emotions, but don't put it off for weeks on end. Get things settled as soon as you can. This is an important thing. Jesus said to his listeners in Matthew 5, 23, he said this, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar of the temple and suddenly you remember that somebody has something against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go re be reconciled with that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. See, I think this applies to worship for us. To worship God is the highest priority in the life of a Christian. But Jesus says be reconciled with others first. That it takes precedence over our acts of worship. 
Get right with your brother and sister. Then come and worship. I believe it's such a serious matter that we need to get things straightened out with some, that if we need to get things straightened out with somebody, that it would take precedence over everything else in our life as well. Over appointments for work, over family obligations, over our social plans. Because I believe Jesus wants us to know that a fractured community is a matter of urgency. You have to take action right away. You shouldn't let it sit. Would you leave a broken arm untreated? Let's say that before church I was in the lobby and somebody spilled coffee and I slipped and fell and I broke my arm. And I'm talking about a big break, a visible break. My arm doesn't look the same. It's debilitating and painful. And I'm rolling around on the ground in pain. All of you would come around me and go, man, Dave, you've got to go to the emergency room so your arm can be looked at. But I say to you, nah, I'm going to wait a couple weeks. I want to see if it gets better on its own. If I just ignore it, maybe it'll get a little bit better. The pain will fade. Now, while most of us wouldn't put off treatment of a broken arm, man, the normal practice in church is to postpone the treatment of broken relationships. And from God's perspective, broken relationships among his children are far more serious than broken bones. Do you need to have a private conversation with somebody? I mean, think about that. Because if you do, don't delay. You need to start soon. Because to God, it's a very serious matter. It's serious. Here's the second thing. Meet face to face. Technology makes it easy for us to have private conversations in any number of ways. Yet Jesus said, go. He said, go. Didn't say email. He said, didn't say text. He said, go and point out the offense. Jesus had a face-to-face conversation in mind. Don't email somebody. Don't hide behind your computer. Don't do it on the telephone. Definitely don't do it through text or social media. That, sh- that all falls short of what Jesus had in mind. You have to meet face-to-face because when you meet face-to-face, you can better read somebody's body language. And know that they're sincere. Did you know, believe it or not, did you know that 80% of communication is body language? 80%. 80% is body language. Now, you can use email or the phone or you can write a note to try to set up an appointment. But, man, don't rely on technology to help you have the conversation that would be better face-to-face. I know it's hard to have it face-to-face. But when you email or text, there's so many read-between-the-lines kind of things that happen it's just it should you should never have any serious conversation ever through technology should always be face to face number three affirm the relationship remind the person that you're that you're trying to resolve the conflict with that you care about them and that you care about the relationship see a good way to approach the subject might be with a statement like this i want to discuss something with you that may be difficult for both of us. I value our friendship, and you are too important in my life to let our relationship remain strained. And I'm confident that with God's help, we can resolve this together. Man, if you can go in with that approach and affirm the relationship, tell them that the reason you're doing this is because you care about the relationship, that will go miles to help repairing it. So affirm the relationship. 
Number four, make observations, not accusations. Man, don't come into it loaded for bear, guns blazing, and drop a megaton bomb on them. Remember, your goal is to win them back. Restoration is the win, not total annihilation. Restoration is the win. Because, see, it's one thing to come in and say, you know, I felt like you weren't being honest with me about keeping my confidence about the things I was struggling with when you told others about it. It's another thing that blurred out, you're a gossipy, no good liar who is totally untrustworthy. See, the first is a firm approach, but it makes observations about what's been seen, perceived, and felt. The second is an accusation. Calling them a liar and a gossiper is an assault on their character, and it'll immediately make them defensive. And when we get defensive, we become offensive. Okay? So make observations, not accusations. Number five, get the facts. Besides offering your own observations, be sure to let the other person respond. You might could say, here's what I saw, heard, and felt. Now what about you? How do you understand the situation? I might be missing or misunderstanding something. See, both parties need to be silent and listen when the other person is speaking. And it's hard to do sometimes, isn't it? Because we just want to go bam, 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 bam. Here it is. Boom, 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 boom. But James 1.19 says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. In other words, listen to the person. Don't formulate your answers while they are speaking. I do that to my wife all the time. She'll be going blah, 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 and I'll be like, all right, here we go. All right, I got it. I'm ready for the next round. I'm reloading as she's talking. Don't, don't do that. Don't formulate your answers while they are speaking, but love them enough Love them enough to keep your ears open and try to hear what they're saying. Pretty simple, right? Here's the last one. Promote resolution. The point is not to fight, win, or prove somebody wrong. That is not your point. The point is reconciliation, restoring the relationships. Relationships that are valuable to us and to God. See, in this private conversation, we need to decide what steps need to be taken to restore trust and recreate the sense of harmony again. And the hope is, the hope is we'll be able to resolve our differences with one another in this one-on-one conversation. Now, most people feel that confrontation is a terrible thing. However, Confrontation, like I said, can lead to healing and joy. But if we avoid it like the West Nile virus, then how are we ever going to be able to find healing in our relationships? The key is to make confrontation a positive event and to look at your brother and sister and pray for them and love them. Remember, you're no better than they are. You're not. If you think you are, you're lying to yourself. And you probably need to go point that offense out to yourself. Because we're no better than they are. And they're no better than you are. Now the difficulty comes into play when people have no desire to reconcile. They have no desire to reconcile. And at this point, you have two choices. Number one, you can determine that the issue is not that important to you and to your life. 
And with the help of the Holy Spirit, you can seek to forgive them and drop the issue and move on in life. Of course, if they're involved in the church and you are, then you need to decide if you can work side by side with that person. Sometimes, actually, I think a lot of times, God calls us to this with those who don't want to reconcile. God calls us to drop it and forgive them. Not to go to the next step in Matthew 18, but God calls us to drop it. But you have to understand this option is a forgive and let it go option. Not just to drop it and hold on to bitterness option. That's not what you do. Or hold on to it till the next event so I can bring it up again. No, that's not what you do. It is a drop it and forget option. Move on. Forgive. You have to forgive. Absorb the cost. And you do that for the sake of unity in the body of Christ. Sometimes God calls us to that. To absorb the cost for the sake of unity. Otherwise, the next step is you have to bring two or three trustworthy people, objective people to meet together. The purpose is for these witnesses is to confirm what they're hearing and hopefully they open the eyes of the two who are at odds. And the ultimate goal is that that conflict can be resolved and there would be reconciliation. But let me tell you about this, about bringing other people into it. Man, be very careful about doing that. Be very careful when you bring others into it. Jesus wants us to meet privately first. That's why it's the first step. But the temptation that we have is usually to involve others from the very beginning, even before we meet privately. And the church becomes a very unsafe place when we involve others in our conflicts for the sole purpose of complaining about the other person. Now, that's not to say, I'm not, listen, that's not to say that you can't have people who are your confidants, people that we can talk about, talk to about what our situation is, people who can be objective and help us through difficult times. But that should be a very, very close and trusted person in your life. Not just anybody who will listen. Somebody you can trust to hold confidence tight. Because when other people are brought into the situation, their opinion of somebody else may be tainted. When you've really just misinterpreted the person's words or actions, and that's how long-term damage happens. Because Satan loves it when we do this. He loves it when, we, when he convinces us to air our conflicts with anyone but the person who's involved. And if we're like most churches, we've got room to grow in this. But we're only going to grow. We're only going to grow if each of us makes a firm commitment to rely on the Holy Spirit for courage to handle our conflicts one-on-one rather than complaining to somebody else. Handling conflict in a healthy way is vital. It's vital to the mission of this church. Because here's what I know. We live in a world filled with poverty, pain, oppression, injustice, and suffering. And all these things, they're not just happening in some far corner of the world, they're happening right here in South Lakeland, in our backyard. Our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, even our friends are all struggling through this life. Oh yeah, people try to hide it and they try to wear a mask and say that it's all good, but behind that mask there are marriages that are falling apart, there are children being abused, there are families broken in two. People are burdened with worry about the future. People are trapped by addiction. Single mothers are struggling financially. People are dealing with grief, guilt, shame, and hopelessness. 
and all this adversity in the world, all this suffering is our opportunity for ministry. The work that God has given us is directed toward a suffering and desperate world. And our mission, our mission as this church, as TBA, is to live sin as the hands and feet of Jesus, to share this amazing love of Jesus Christ, to, the sh- to share this amazing news of the gospel. But for us to be able to accomplish that, it's going to require every person in this body of Christ. And that means that every person in this body of Christ has to be spiritually healthy and vibrant with the life of Christ in them. Because the work of the ministry cannot be effectively carried out in a weak, unhealthy church, a church that is torn with internal conflicts and racked by disunity. It just can't be done. It can't be done. Unity is a huge deal. And is it a, it's a foundational principle that Christ built his church upon. They will know us by our what? Y'all know that verse? They'll know us by our what? Love. You remember that verse? They'll know us by our love. Jesus isn't talking about our love that we're going to have for the world, but the love that we have for each other. They will know we are his disciples by the love that we have for each other. Paul talked about unity all the time. In fact, he saw the danger of division. He saw so clearly the danger that it was that his response was to cut it out and remove it entirely from the church. And Titus, he tells Titus, if people are causing divisions among you, give a first warning, a second warning. After that, have nothing to do with them. For people like that have turned away from truth and their own sins condemn them. Now, I know we don't talk about church discipline a lot because it isn't a popular subject, but Paul's basically saying if people cause division, remove them from the church. Those are pretty strong words. Pretty strong words, but he knows the danger it can cause. So he takes drastic measures to protect the body of Christ. But he also gives a solution for it. He gives a solution for disunity. It's love and forgiveness and Brian talked about it last week. In Ephesians, he says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another, even as God, Christ forgave you. Listen, I know that dealing with conflict isn't an easy thing to do. But I believe this with all my heart. If we, if we are going to be the church that God calls us to be, then we have to be able to deal with conflict in a way that shows love and unity that supersedes what the world does. Why would anybody, why would anybody want to be a part of this fellowship if all they find is the same hurts and pains that the world offers? If church isn't a safe place for them to come, why would they come? Why would you? If you're treated the same way in church that you're treated in the world, why would you want to be a part of this? I wouldn't. So I'm going to say this to you in the most loving way that I can. If you have caused injury or hurt to your brother and sister, go and make it right. Go and make it right. If you're holding a grudge because of that hurt, forgive Because you're commanded to do so. 
it's not an option for you. If you are intentionally causing harm and division to this body of Christ, just stop it. Stop doing it. And I don't say that flippantly or with pride or arrogance. I'm humbly begging you out of love to stop destroying what God is doing here. We've got this huge mission in front of us. People are dying. And it can't be done. It can't be done if we can't overlook each other's faults and mistakes and unite as one body of Christ. So as the band comes up, I want to leave you with, I want to leave you with the prayer that Jesus prayed. Now, he prayed this right before he went to the cross, okay? So you know all that he's going through. But this is what he prays before he goes to the cross. It's in John 17. He says this, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's you and me. He's praying for you and me. I pray that they will be one. I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us. Why? So that the world will believe you sent me. See, how we treat each other, how we handle conflict is our testimony to the truth of Jesus Christ. So let's show that sacrificial love to others that Jesus shown to us. Let's overlook each other's faults. Let's deal with conflict in a loving and healthy manner. Let's make sure that our words and our actions are working towards building each other up and encouraging one another and not tearing each other down so that the world will know. When the world looks in at TBA, when they see TBA, they will know that we're unified by our love for each other and that this is a safe place for them to come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy in our lives. Lord, I thank you that even though we were your enemies, you still loved us and cared about us, Father. And that at the very beginning of time, you sought to resolve the conflict that was between us and you by sending your son Jesus to die for us. God, my prayer is that we would not fear conflict, that we would see it as a healthy way to grow in dependence upon you, to grow in understanding of each other, to grow in love, Father. That what the enemy designed for hurt, Lord, you would use to grow and do great things through. Help us to be bold and, and have courage to seek those out that we have wounded or those that have wounded us. And to offer forgiveness and love and grace, Lord. It's in your name I pray.